You're listening to Boston Strongcast, a place where we talk all things powerlifting, strength, and the occasional scientific nerd session. I'm your host, Kevin Can, the owner of Precision Powerlifting Systems, strength coach and competitive powerlifter in the USAPL. Thanks for tuning in, and let's get stronger together. Hey guys, this is Kevin Can with Boston Strongcast. I'm going to do another, I say, quick solo episode today. Um, but we know sometimes my quick ends up not being very quick. Um, I got asked a really good question on my Patreon channel. So I haven't mentioned the Patreon channel on the podcast, but it's 20 bucks a month. I put programs up there, but a lot of information. And what it is, is, you know, I think of it as structuring it in a way that if people were interning for me, the stuff that I would teach them. Uh, so there's longer videos, 45 minutes, an hour long of me describing certain aspects of training but me putting it towards what pps does right so it's me explaining my thought process how i come up with the programs the different thinking that i have in terms of a lot of these aspects of training so you can kind of get a a feel for what we do at pps through the patreon channel um i i get messages and comments and stuff that i i try to respond to every single one of them So uh, yesterday I put out a nine-week program. So the way that we do our programming, we do it in three phases. And the first phase is a lot more like GPP conditioning stuff. You'll do max effort exercises on days one and two. But the following week, those max effort exercises typically become rep work. And then the following week on week three of the phase, we try to beat the first max effort exercise by five pounds. Then in phase two... We bring in every other week a deadlift max effort on day three, and there's still rep work on in between weeks. And then, um, and sometimes I will say, sometimes in phase two, what I would do is just add five pounds week two, add five pounds week three if we can do that. So you get a few more max effort lifts in there, um, but I'll be more apt to put in rep work on those weeks opposite the max effort stuff. And then phase three, we keep the deadlifts every other week, but the difference that we do in this phase is days one and two will always be max effort work. So if we do like, for example, let's say we do a wide stance box squat week one and that lifter hits a 10, I might do wide stance box squat with bands week two so that we can constantly get days one and two are always max effort exercises. Deadlift every other week is. So if we're leading up to a competition, we get a lot more singles in that way. So I put up a nine-week program, so a three-week phase one, three-week phase two, three-week phase three. It's very rare that I would ever cycle through something so quick, um, but I wanted to give an example of what it would look like in a condensed fashion. So some people on the Patreon channel choose to run the programs as I write them, but I use them more as examples to start conversations. Um, So this is the question that I got. It goes, hi, Kevin. Thanks for the program. The three waves go high bar, safety squat bar, and then low bar, all with a wide stance. And then it uses box, chains, or bands. Regarding the order, wouldn't it be more interesting due to the specificity to use safety squat bar first, then high bar, and then finally low bar? And this is a great question because I think a lot of people, when they um, when they use... When they think about specificity in training, I think what ends up happening here is they view the movement itself as the specific action of the sport, right? So, for example, a straight bar competition squat would be sport-specific to the sport of powerlifting. Now, I don't 
I don't necessarily disagree with that sentiment, but there's a lot more to it. So I would not be one to say that a set of 10 straight bar comp squats would be specific to the sport of powerlifting. To me, doing a heavy single is what's specific to the sport. Um, I think what we miss the mark on is it's specificity versus transference, right? So we want a certain skill to transfer over to our sport that allows us to display greater strength on the platform. So one of the things that we need to take into consideration is the actual loads being used. So if we're using very low loads in those competition style lifts, to me, that's not very sport specific. But if I look at somebody's competition squat and I realize that, okay, here's a technical, physical, mental aspect of training that we need to work on. We can put them in positions. We can get the sport specific singles in there. Um, and it's a hard single, right? So if we're putting the bar up an inch on our back and moving our feet out a couple of inches, you know, into a high bar wide stance squat, why wouldn't that carry over to our competition squat? If it's targeting a weakness, we're getting sport specific heavy singles and the heavy singles require some type of psychological response and training. So to me, that's, that's sport specific. So when I look at a lifter, I'm looking at their specific skills when they're doing a lift. So like, for example, like we'll keep on the squat example, everybody needs more hips. A wide stance squat will build up a more narrow stance squat every time. A close stance squat will build up your deadlift. Okay, so like putting people wider is just something we do a lot more frequently than we will bring it in close. But that doesn't mean we don't train those closer stance squats as well. Um, and what you see very common, a very common breakdown is lifter hits the hole, they go to stand up and the chest comes forward. All right, so when this happens, you know, the, we wanna make sure that we're pushing one first with the upper back, the traps should push into the bar, we're pushing out on our feet, then we stand up. So that upper back is responsible for bar path and speed. So it's gotta set where that bar is gonna be before you start driving upwards with your legs. So it's very important that that timing happens first. So a high bar squat, what it does is it, it, it makes that more difficult. Okay, so it increases the moment arm of those thoracic extensors. So it's harder on those muscles to push back into that weight. And what you're gonna do is, because you're more upright with a high bar position, you're gonna feel it a lot more when you get when you get pushed forward. And that bar being higher, it's just, it's harder to control and it's harder to push the traps up first. So if we start with a high bar wide stance box squat or something, um, what I wanna do from there is, so we'd run that wave and then that second wave, I put a safety squat bar squat in there with similar things. So the box and then we added bands and chains. So the thing with the bands and the chains, what it does is if you're pitching forward, it makes it very hard to beat the bands or the accommodating resistance because as that weight's increasing, it's getting harder on shitty leveraged positions. What it also does is it decreases the load at the tougher positions to enhance that skill. So if we're on the box, the load decreases enough where the lifter can focus on getting the traps up, start moving it and keep driving the back into the bar. So it's working on a specific skill that we're trying to improve upon in the squat and we'll do heavy singles and they'll strain. So we get all of those aspects of it. 
um, put into one, which helps enhance the skill of the lift overall much better than if we just, we broke up those aspects. So if we just did a bunch of higher volume sub max stuff to work on that, we're not getting one, the psychological component that comes about with lifting maximal weights. Two, it's not really specific to the technique of maximal weights because the load is significantly less. So the amount of force that you need to put in at, the, at certain positions is much less. So what I like to do is use bands and chains and then remove the accommodating resistance and use some straight weight. So we kind of alternate between all of those. So if we start with the high bar, when we bring that safety squat bar in next, it's basically a much tougher version of a high bar because of the way that the harness sits, the bar is actually above your traps. So it's like a extreme high bar squat. So it makes that skill of driving back into the bar even more, even more difficult to do under those circumstances. So if we take that high bar squat and then we just make that same squat more difficult for the skill in which we're trying to train, that's what we're doing with that safety squat bar. And then from there, what I wanna see is I wanna see that improvement. So when we put the bar lower on the back, I wanna see them be able to maintain. So now we're decreasing the demands of the thoracic extensors. We've worked for six weeks. Usually it's longer than this, but we've worked for six weeks on enhancing a certain skill within the lift, targeting certain angles, targeting certain muscle groups. I wanna see it put together. So we put the bar lower on their back. Maybe we start with accommodating resistance in the box, but we keep everything else the same just so that they can get a feel for it. And then we gradually start taking stuff away. So maybe we use straight weight and then we take the box away and we finish with a wide stance squat. So I wanna see their ability to hit that wide stance squat. They should hit a PR on that. Oftentimes what you end up seeing with lifters is you end up seeing them hit all time PRs in these different positions. Um, so let's say we get a lifter, the best squat ever is 500 pounds. They hit a wide stand squat at the end of running it like this. And they end up hitting more than that 500 pounds usually because a low bar squat with your feet a little bit wider when you've been training it for a period of time, it's, it's not that different from your competition squat. In some cases, a lot of people compete that way. And sometimes they even end up competing that way. So it ends up being their comp stance. Um, and me personally, I'd rather see somebody squat wider than more narrow because I'd rather see the hips, the hamstrings, the low back, the posterior chain utilized a lot more for the quads. And I understand that there are a lot of people that wear heels and squat close and squat a lot of weight. But the, the thing that you got to remember in this sport is we're training a total. So that wide stance squat where we're using a lot more of the posterior chain is also going to target the deadlift. So if you're a close stance squatter in heels and you're very upright in the lower back and the quads are doing most of the work and the lower back is kind of being neglected and you're not using a lot of hip drive, the lockout of your deadlift's going to suffer. And also it just doesn't build resiliency in the lower back. So that's where you can start to see some injuries on deadlift lockouts. Like I've heard stories of a lot of lifters that try even not to lock out weight in training because they've hurt their back a few times. So when you look at their squats, they tend to be close stance squatters, very upright. So I think that's something we need to keep in mind is we're training a total. We're not training three individual lifts. So the squat and the deadlift can feed each other if you choose to squat in a style that's wider and more focused on the posterior chain. Um, I think what you end up seeing too is you see a lot of those close stance squatters they're very round on the deadlift and they have these very weird looking sumo deadlifts. Like there's no arch in their back, they're round, they use all quads and upper back. 
and that mimics the way that they're squatting. And they're, you're gonna be very limited. I understand there are people who lift a lot of weight in these positions, but you're gonna be very limited in your capabilities and your overall ceiling for the majority of the population lifting in those positions. So I'm really big on squatting a specific way because I think it also feeds the deadlift and the deadlift will feed the squat. So we get two lifts that are gonna work together, especially for us, we only, you know, we squat twice a week, we deadlift one to two times a week, and we bench twice a week. So our frequency is lower than a lot of other programs. So we need to get the most bang for our buck in those days. But it allows us to train really hard, and it allows us to get the most out of it if we do these things. Um, and I think in a lot of cases, you get quantity over quality in these programs, and a stimulus is a stimulus. So of course it's going to work over that period of time. Um, I think when you look at it too, so like in that program that I written in those nine weeks, we used a wide stance throughout that whole entire block, the, those whole nine weeks. I think what coaches end up doing is you're too apt to change things too quickly sometimes. So like for me, if I want to target the hips and the posterior chain, it takes time to do these things. So you need to display some patience in your training, but you gotta remember the law of accommodation is a thing. So there has to be enough variability, but not so much that you don't get anything out of it. So one of the things that I do personally, like in my own training is for three weeks, I'll pick a certain thing that I wanna target. So maybe it's a low box I'm gonna use, and then I'll change the bars or the accommodating resistance or whatever, but I'll do three weeks of that low box. Um, so in the case here, I did nine weeks of wide stance squatting. And f when I think of that, it's, you're not gonna fix a problem in a three week way. So it, it shouldn't just be, oh, we'll do wide stance for three weeks, then medium stance for three weeks, then close stance for three weeks. You can do that, but you gotta remember there's a time, it takes time and patience is required to actually build up the strength and the skill of new angles. And you need to display that patience in training. So, um, Jess Ward competed at the Arnold in March and she hit 181 on it. This is just a good example of what I'm talking about. She hit 181 on a bench press and it was a grind. Her legs were all over the place. I was really worried her ass was gonna come up. When she's pausing on her chest, her elbows spin out towards her head and there's a hard elbow flare um, as she goes to press up. And that, that hard elbow flare just loses speed and what it tells us is upper back and triceps um, need to be better. And we clearly had to fix the foot position and the leg drive in the bench press. So we changed our foot position, got it into a position where she's very stable, she can't move, and she's very locked in. We got the upper back time. We just did a ton of close grip and medium grip bench press. So just really targeting the triceps. We overloaded the top quite a bit. So we used a lot of accommodating resistance. We used heavy chains on benches. Um, because we wanted to target one, her legs staying tight the whole time, the upper back staying tight. We wanted to strengthen the triceps and that's like, and we wanted to do it while putting them into a competitive position of having to hit heavy singles. So it targets all of these areas. So from March to now, which is now September, it's been six months of doing it. She hit 185 pounds in a medium grip bench press, so it's pinkies on the rings. Her elbows stayed solid with the paws on her chest. Her legs didn't move, her hips didn't move. She pushed in a straight line up. So we're seeing all of these 
components brought together in a much better bench press than what we saw in March, but that's six months. And that's six months of a very good lifter who trains hard, focuses, pays attention, all of those things. So when you have all those cards stacked in your favor, it still took six months to build that technique and put five pounds on that bench press. Now, if she goes out wider, she's probably getting a little bit more than that five pounds because her wide grip's much stronger uh, than her closer grips. So that is something to keep in mind is under those circumstances, it took an elite lifter six months to make those improvements. And this is not just, this is how it works in the sport of powerlifting. You know, especially once you hit a certain level, you're maybe getting five to 10 pounds per lift per year, right? So patience is necessary. And I think I got into the habit of changing stuff much too frequently, but I, I needed to be more directed in what I was trying to target and be patient targeting it and not just stop doing that because it's been a certain amount of time. So in terms of like grip on the bench, I probably would have thrown in more wide grip stuff in the past where we would have just done a whole wave of wide grip stuff. But now I just kind of maintain it in the background a little bit on the second day of benching occasionally. I'll th I throw it in there just so she can touch it, feel the balance with it. And now that we have a meet in six weeks, next starting next week, she's actually gonna start doing way more wide grip bench on that second day. And we're gonna start putting everything together. But it was six months of just using tons of closer grip stuff, using lots of accommodating resistance, targeting those areas, focusing on that technique, and just building it up. And then when you start seeing it improve, now it's on to the next thing. So let's let's keep building off of what we've built previously, but same thing, we need to be patient, we need to take our time, we need to not just take it out to change things up for the sake of changing things up. Um, and this is just like a, I've got more, I've developed more patience as a coach the longer I've done this stuff. So with a wide stance squat, Alyssa's a good example of this. Um, she, I'd have to go back and look at her sheet, but we did a ton of wide stance squatting for a very long period of time. And she ended up, I think her best meat squat was 336, but she's hit 365 twice on a box squat now. So we've put a lot on her squat just by doing that, but a wide stance box squat, and this again gets back to, we're training a total, not a specific lift. So having that, that viewpoint, a wide stance box squat, I've just found really builds up the deadlifts. So I understand why Westside doesn't deadlift as much as what they do. Uh, you know, they get away with not deadlifting as much as what others think that they should is because they focus on the posterior chain, which is going to develop your deadlift. And the box squats are basically a deadlift. Once you're getting off that box, the bar is just on your back. So you're coming from a dead stop off of the box like that. There's, there's a lot of carryover to it. So Alyssa's best deadlift at a meet and the, these lifts were done in February, so seven months ago, was 391. She took 408 from a deficit on a deadlift. So she's added 30 pounds to her squat and about 30 pounds to her deadlift during this period of time of doing a lot of this stuff. Um, so it's one of the things like putting together a program where I used to just look at the squat. You know, in the squat and the deadlift build up the bench too because of the upper back and just like, <laughs> At some point, strong is strong. 
And if you can squat a lot of weight, you can pull a lot of weight, you're, you're gonna just have enough ability to just drive through a barbell to bench. Um, so it does, it, obviously the squat and the deadlift build each other up a lot more than either of those is gonna build up the bench, but it still matters. Um, so before I would just, you know, oh, we should do this with a squat. And then I look at the deadlift and be like, okay, we should do this with the deadlift. But instead, now I more look at each one combined. How can we best train to get the best total that we can get in this scenario? So like if I really want to target the hips during that wide stance squatting, I'm going to do some type of sumo deadlift probably. Now, one thing you do have to keep in mind is doing all that wide stance work if they're not prepared for it. Now, our frequency is lower, so in a lot of cases, it's not a, it, it works out fine. Um, but it can bother the hips a little bit, so you might have to take a break from doing the sumo deadlifts. But what I end up doing is on every other week when we do the rep work, I just make it very light. So it might be like sets of four at 65% of the previous week's max effort. So we're just building a lot of volume and work capacity at those angles, and it just allows them to be able to, I think, continue to lift hard at those wider angles without getting fucked up too much. Um, what I'll do too is, so I, I think the recovery for it, it comes down to how much load there is at given angles. So the bottom of a deadlift is obviously gonna be the most difficult. So if we did a two inch deficit sumo deadlift plus bands, when they're at the bottom position, the load's gonna be so light because we've made it so difficult on them that it's really gonna minimize the load at those tough positions. But at the top, we're gonna be handling weights that are gonna be very similar to what they're gonna handle from the floor with straight weight. So you're able to get those good hard reps through that range of motion, strain a little bit. And I understand that tension and straight weight are very different, but at some point, weight is weight, strong is strong. So being able to manipulate the loads at given angles. So if we're doing a lot of wide stance, let's say we're doing wide stance box squats with straight weight. So when they're on the box, there's max, you know close to maximal loads on there. Uh, most people in those cases are getting 90 to 93% of their best squat in this scenario. So if I know I'm doing that, putting them at a deficit with bands, they're, you know, at the bottom position, it typically, it can be around 70 and maybe as much as 80% at the bottom positions, but 80% from a deficit. Usually you see front with bands or with chains, with the amount of bands and chains that we use, they're getting 80% from the floor. So adding in that two inch deficit drops that usually by another 5%. So it tends to be like maybe 75% is their top single on a max effort day, but, you know, they're getting at the top 90 to 95% usually once you include the accommodating resistance. So it just allows them to continue to train those angles, target weak areas, and just continuously work on those weak areas. And to me, that's really important because I, I used to be like, okay, well, if I'm doing wide stance box squats, I should do close, close stance, like a conventional deadlift or something like that. And I think... I think when I was doing that, what I it just it didn't work as well because I wasn't going after a weakness. And now I decide to spend a certain amount of time of just targeting a weakness. Like, here's what I want to see. Here's the game plan. We're gonna keep an eye on it. We'll make adjustments as we need to make adjustments, but we're not gonna move on until it's better. 
And sometimes it takes six months, sometimes it takes a year, sometimes it takes even more. And sometimes during that period of time, what you're gonna see happen is you're gonna see the weights go backwards. And I used to, and if you go back in the podcasts or my blog, like you've heard me write about this, that the goal is to be able to push progress forward the whole time while trying to change technique and everything else. But I've changed my mind quite a bit on that. And now it's, especially like with Corona and there's not a lot of competitions um, coming up and people are just getting back into training. Like it's just a good time to be like, you know what, let's just really take some time and let's build a foundation of what I want to see. So if your back's round on a deadlift, I don't care how much you deadlift, none of you are winning world championships in the next two to three years. Let's strengthen those angles that we need to strengthen. Let's fix these. Let's set a better foundation and let's build upon that foundation. Let's take our time with it. Let's be smart, but let's train hard the entire time. So like there's a couple lifters on PPS who are lifting, I wouldn't say significantly less, but 10 to 15% less on some of their lifts while we build it up. And I don't, I don't care. Like training's still going to be hard. You're not getting weaker. But if we just continue doing what we were doing, one, it would take longer to fix it. You're going to get stuck at some point. Um, and it's about the total anyway. So if we can really get you in those positions, build it up. By the time you compete again, we should be in a position where you can hit a PR. But if not, let's make sure it looks better. Let's set the groundwork for the following competition and just keep and just keep at it. Um, I, I do think long term that this makes the most sense, um, especially where, you know, if, if people's goal is to compete at nationals, and the way that they raise the totals so much, I think it's even more important that we lay that foundation because before you can, you could get away with some technical inefficiencies and hit those totals and do pretty well. But now that they've increased so much, you're just gonna, basically with those technical inefficiencies, it just lowers your ceiling to be able to reach that goal. So now it's even more important. And I, I have a feeling that the USAPL is gonna roll back some of those qualifying totals to make it a little bit easier. Um, I think a big part of it is one, they've lost a lot of money. It's a good way to make some more money, but also there's a lot of people who aren't lifting anymore. So the decrease in numbers of the sport, um, I think will decrease the overall strength levels of the sport. So it's kind of like a little dip backwards before it's gonna build back up again. But at some point they're gonna raise them back up to where they were. And it, I mean, they might keep it there too. So if they do do that, I want to make sure that we're setting ourselves up um, in the best way that we can to develop that strength and that skill to be able to do those things. And I think it's important that we look good on the platform um, when we are lifting. So, you know, I've, um, I guess the more experience you get, it's almost like this increase in wisdom where you realize that there's a lot more uncertainty in things and everything else. But at the same time, you start learning how to put things together just a lot better. You start having a, a wider and larger view on the bigger picture. And now that I've been doing this for over six years, coaching powerlifting and lifting and stuff, you start to have just a better idea of the longer term picture, which I don't necessarily think I had before, right? If you don't have the experience and, and don't get me wrong, I've talked to a lot of people with experience and they told me certain things and it's, you understand it to a certain point, but you don't understand it because you haven't been through it. So now that I've 
I've been through it a little bit longer and I would imagine, you know, at 10 years, I'm going to have a different outlook at 15 years, at 20 years. Um, as my experience grows, that knowledge base, that wisdom and how I manage things is going to change based off of my experiences and what I've, what I've learned. Um, like, for example, for about the last year, all I've done is singles because I wanted to experience that. So I know that we can't just do singles and get better. I am fully fucking aware of that, and that's why PPS wasn't just doing singles. But for me to truly understand it, I needed to experience it. I mean, if powerlifting was as easy as just going into the gym and doing singles, they would have figured that out 60 years ago. And I'm literally, I'm fully aware of that. But I wanted to experience what it was like for the recovery, what it was like psychologically, what it was like going in and out of the gym, how it would affect my numbers. Um, there were just a number of things that I wanted to experience and fully understand so that I can best make decisions on where to put singles in, where they're appropriate, where they may not be appropriate. And then now what I'm doing is I'm adding in some volume. So I want to see how the volume will affect me doing all of these singles because I do think whoever can do the most singles in training at the end of the day is going to win with all other things considered equal. But we know you need a certain amount of volume in order to get stronger. But nobody knows where to start there or how much. I always use Shaco's heuristics because he had the experience I didn't. And to be honest, I still don't know where to start with somebody. I have, you know, a lot better of an idea at this point than what I used to. To, but where do you start with somebody in terms of volume? And for me, what I'm experiencing now is, okay, I'm starting very light, adding in another day, so my frequency is increased. And with my volume going up, I'm much more sore. It definitely affects my performance. Like I'm definitely seeing a small dip in the amount I'm willing to lift and the amount I'm capable of lifting. And mentally, it's harder for me to get up to actually do those things. Now I view these as challenges, but at the same time, I can't be stupid. So it's Thursday, I'm recording this. I've had a pretty hard week of training. And like for the first time in a long time and probably over a year, I have a little bit of joint pain. So tomorrow when I train, so usually on Friday, now I've added in volume squats before I do my deadlifts, but I've kept the deadlift singles. Tomorrow might be the first day that I don't pull a single because I just, I feel like I need a lighter day. So I might work up to a triple on squats, you know, moderate to heavy weight, and then work up to a triple on conventional deadlifts, not getting in the gear for either one of these, any of that stuff. Same thing, moderate weight and just move on. Do some GPP bodybuilding stuff and just get, get out of there. I think, you know, and that's what, when you look at our phases, like understanding that we have to pull back from singles a little bit if our volume's increasing. Now I think, I don't know if you get desensitized to a training means, but I think just taking a break from the competition lifts, even if it's just for three weeks, and just doing some bodybuilding stuff, having some fun training, do whatever the fuck you want, but keeping a few singles in there just to at least maintain strength, still work on some stuff, but really decrease that barbell volume. To me, that goes a long way in just resetting, because every sport does have an off season. I think there's, you know, when I watch, I think it's called The Art of Coaching or the Bill Belichick, Nick Saban documentary, I think it was on HBO. And at the end of the year, each one of them goes to this vacation house by themselves and they just fish. They don't think about football, they don't do anything. Like I think there's, there's something to be said about that, about just taking a mental break from it for a while. 
Um, so, you know, I think lifting weights is a, it's not as grueling as an NFL season, but I think doing just enough to kind of maintain that while you hit some GPP, build up some conditioning, um, have some fun, like do some of those things, there's this benefit to taking that little bit of a break. And if we do that, you know, three to six weeks, couple, two, three times a year, I think it can go a long way. I don't necessarily know if the GPP exercises are gonna help build up strength anywhere, but I think if anything, it's, you're gonna be moving, it's gonna help your recovery a little bit because you're gonna be depriving your muscles of oxygen, so it's gonna force them to recover a little bit faster. So there's probably some foundational things that it builds, but overall it's probably not doing a whole lot except just allowing you to take a little bit of a break. A big gust of wind, so we'll take a little bit of, we'll take a breath. Um, so, but then I think building it back up and having these these small areas, not these small areas, but these three to nine weeks of where we just really, you know, maybe a little bit longer, but we just really fucking bite down and focus and get after it. I think it can enhance the focus of those of those parts of training and you can just get more out of everything overall. Um, so if by the time we get to those, you know, how we were doing it before, everything was basically like phase two, right? So if we just kept constantly doing the same thing, at some point the staleness and the boredom, yeah, you might still, cause like taking singles of fun, you get different variations, so it makes you pay attention in different ways. But I think when you're doing the same thing all of the time, the focus, maybe it's at 85, 90%, but it's not really at 100%. But if you take a break and you allow those things to, to change and you slowly build it up and you just get into this area, we can really put 100% effort into it, mental and physical. I think overall, we can just get a lot more out of our performance that way. So like, this is why we started breaking it up into um, phases like this. And we just started doing this. So, you know, as it goes along, I'm probably gonna make some adjustments to it because I'm gonna be forced to and I'm gonna see what's working, what's not. Um, and we'll go from there. But um, I think, you know, again, I've only been doing this for six years. So developing a system when you think of somebody like Shaco, I mean, in the 90s, he was coaching the Russian national team and he didn't gain popularity till, you know, five to 10 years ago here, probably closer to 10 years now, holy shit. Um, but even then, you know, it's 20 years after he was done coaching the national team. So it takes a long time to develop these systems. Um, and same thing, like Westside was around from the, Louis was coaching people in the 60s and competing in the 60s, but they didn't gain popularity until 30 years later. So I understand it takes a long time to develop a system. It's kind of cool that, you know, I know it's only been six years, but you're starting to see the development of our system, of PPS's system. It's definitely not just another run-in-the-mill um, program. It's not another DUP program. It's not It's not Westside. It's not Shaco. It's our own thing, and we're figuring out our own way. And it's probably fun for the lifters, too, at times to be a part of it. And I know some don't want you know, that constant change and to be like, all right, well, we're going to try this instead, but that's what it should be. And that's how you, you make progress. It's, it's what keeps you in tune to doing these things. That's what keeps your attention and your focus is always trying to get a little better and understanding that, you know, you can always do a little better. You can always make an adjustment that's going to make you a little bit better and continuing to move forward. And that's what it should be like, hopefully until, 
Well, I'll never be able to retire because I'll be fucking broke until the day I die because I'll be working until the day I die. Um, but I'm going to keep this one a little bit shorter. But if you want to see more of this, my Patreon channel, it's patreon.com slash precision powerlifting. Um, you can follow me on Instagram. It's KWCan and our team, Precision Powerlifting Systems. Stay strong, Boston.